Blossom Valley Church. It's so great to be back uh, giving a message for you today. And today we're going to be jumping into the middle of John's Gospel in chapter 11. And it brings front and center the issues of life and death. Death and life. You know, there are so many huge questions regarding that. And if it wasn't on your mind before, COVID-19 has brought death on the minds of a lot of people. We look at the death toll in the United States alone, 160,000 people. Uh, 22% of all the deaths in the world are right here in these United States, and yet we're only 4% of the world's population. People can't help but wonder if just going to see a friend or going to the grocery store is going to cause sickness or possibly even death. And of course, death is also on our mind as we watched the video of a policeman's knee choking the breath out of an unarmed black man and others robbed of their breath by the bullets of policemen. People are understandably angry at death and they're taking to the streets with grief and outrage, longing for for change, for long-term change. In fact, when death hits near any of us, we all hope for change. We all hurt. Everybody hurts when somebody dies. A dear friend and longtime ministry and college colleague, Bryce Jessup, died last week. He was 85. He was up in the backcountry of Yosemite and had just hiked eight miles up to 10,300 feet. He took a nap after that long hike and then went fly fishing, the thing that he loved to do in a small lake there. His son, Jim Jessup, who many of you know and has preached here at Blossom Valley several times, he was fishing about 100 yards away from his dad. He looked down and saw his dad lying in the meadow. Bryce Jessup left this life from a place that he loved and where he'd previously said he'd be happy to die. In fact, he wrote an email to a friend just the week before that. And he said, you know, if it's a one-way trip, my buddies can throw me in a lake for a second baptism. And I'll head on up and fishing, keep fishing in the stream God has waiting for me. We all need to be ready for that one-way trip home someday. And no matter what your age, though we would rather avoid them, death's dark questions look for death's deep answers. If you've studied John's gospel, you know, and you may have noticed, that uh, John records seven miracles. But John doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs. Signs always point to something. They, they give us direction to something, or they give us some information. And these seven signs in John's gospel point to who Jesus is. Now these on your screen now are the first six signs. They're like green direction signs that point to Jesus. They ask people to think about what has just happened. Who is this that's able to do this? What kind of man is this Jesus? But the seventh sign that we're going to focus on today is like one of those giant freeway signs. It's so big you just can't miss it. The resurrection of Lazarus is a huge sign 
that you just can't miss. It's the most dramatic, provocative miracle in the Gospel of John. That is, at least until we get to the climax of John's Gospel, when Jesus himself rises from the dead. Now, John also records seven I am statements. They're further clues to help us understand who Jesus is. Now, today we're going to notice the fifth I am that's situated right in the middle of this seventh sign. And all of them point to life. And though all of the I am's are important in revealing who Jesus is, this I am just jumps off the pages to this huge claim about Jesus. And if the signs are actions then that point to who Jesus is, then the I am's point to Jesus in words to make it clear. So both the signs and the I am's are part of John's purpose in writing this gospel. In the last two verses of the next to the last chapter of John, chapter 20, he says this, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these, the ones that I wrote, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So these three descriptive words, signs, belief, and life, are the keys to John's gospel. Signs are not the end. Don't be too enamored with the miracles. Get the point, but don't stop and gawk at the sign. Go where it takes you. And even belief, that is faith, trust in Jesus Christ, is not the goal. It's not the end. Life is what Jesus came to give us. So the signs point to life and ask us to put our trust in Jesus, who gives us life. Now when we think about death, we realize that death is the ultimate enemy against all of us. And it often seems to win. More than 7,700 people died in the U.S. alone every day in 2017. And probably more are going to die in 2020 with the virus. They leave loved ones in grief, many of whom never quite know how to manage their loss. Death leaves us with questions, complex questions that we'd really often rather not think about. I think death's deep questions probably boil down to just three. The first one is, is death the end? That's a question of finality. The second one is, where is he or she now? That's the question of existence. And then the third one is, why? Why did he or she die? That's the question of purpose. That is the purpose of this death. Now that last one, of course, is the most difficult of the questions. Rarely is the why answered sufficiently. Today, as we look at John 11, we're going to see at least some clues that will give us answers to some of these questions that we ask about life. Let's turn to John chapter 11. Uh, it's a long passage I'm going to read. I'm going to read the first 37 verses, but the story has a lot of action, so I hope you can follow along. Verse 1, 
chapter 11 of John. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Martha, whose brother now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, John doesn't actually tell you this story until the next chapter. So you can tell that he's he's getting ahead of himself just a little bit here. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Probably three single people who lived together, single adults. When he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. I'm going to skip down to verse 11. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought that he meant natural sleep. So then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you too may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of his disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Now, I don't know the tone of voice that he said that. I, I kind of think of him almost as like Eeyore. You know, he just was kind of negative about everything. All right, we're just going to die. But maybe he said it, hopefully. All right, I don't care. We're going to die with him if we need to do that. On his arrival, verse 17, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary, she stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I I know, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. I mean, Martha knows her standard theology. Jesus said to her, I am. There's our fifth I am. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. That's a powerful confession. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to go to the tomb to mourn there. 
And when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and trouble. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man have kept this man from dying? So let's talk first of all about death's debilitating if-onlys. If-onlys. Death often brings up a lot of if-onlys and regrets. I I don't know if you noticed Mary and Martha's if-onlys. If only you had been here, my brother would not have died. If, if, if you had been here. Now these sisters use identical words, but they approach Jesus differently. Martha is standing, and she seems to have a lot of faith. She's distressed over the loss of her brother, of course, and but she seems to have questions about the afterlife. She's the active sister, if you remember. She's, she's the one who gets the job done. And perhaps she's at that stage with, which hit many people right after death comes, when you almost just do things. You just do this and that, whatever needs to be done, almost like a robot. I think the emotion will probably hit her later. Perhaps her questions now are more just about trying to figure things out. What happens when somebody dies? When Mary meets Jesus, she falls at his feet. Perhaps she's angry, hurt, confused, and and crushed. She's the more passionate of the two sisters. Earlier, she was sitting at Jesus' feet to learn from him, but now she dramatically falls at Jesus' feet. Martha needed to know that Jesus is in control, in control of the future. And when our world seems out of control, we wonder, don't we? We wonder, who is in control of the world? I mean, is God in control? And Martha says in verse 22, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Martha seems to know that God is in control, but she needs some certainty. It's not really clear what she was expecting Jesus to request, but she knows that Jesus has a powerful relationship with his father. If Martha needed to know that Jesus is in control, it seems that Mary needed to know that Jesus cared. Jesus cared about their hurt, their sorrow, their grief. And so Jesus meets each sister where she is. One needs an answer to a question. The other needs emotional support. And death always brings up these many questions. But even if it's the same question the people are asked, it hits us all differently. We all need someone to help us when death strikes. And often we just need somebody to sit with us. That's all just silently supporting us. But not only do these sisters have questions and needs, but those around them have questions too. Death affects all of us. In verse 37, some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? 
I mean, the question is, why? If Jesus is so powerful, couldn't he save his friend? And if he could, why didn't he? I mean, of all the people that Jesus might choose to heal, surely Lazarus should have been one of them. He was one of Jesus' best friends. And John records Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Jesus surely would have healed them, if only. If only he had been here, but he wasn't. If if only he was here at, at just the right time when we needed him, but it's too late now. He's dead. And I think we often ask why this person has to die. One who is so young, or one who seemed to be such a good person, or one who follows Jesus so closely, or, or, or our father, or our mother, or our son, or our daughter. If only had it been, if only it had been someone else. Instead of my friend in the prime of life. If only and why seem to facilitate in people's minds, asking those questions back and forth until they have some sort of resolution or even give up trying. Several years ago, a fellow in Valley Christian High School in San Jose was killed in Mexico. He was on vacation with a friend's family, and it was a car accident. The parents must have thought, If only I hadn't let him go, I would have him now. A 13-year-old boy that I know killed himself a couple of years ago. I don't know what his parents and his sisters, if onlys, were, but I can imagine that they had a lot of them. My father died unexpectedly when I was only 18 and a freshman in college. He was only 51. The autopsy revealed that the cause of death was probably a mistake in his gallbladder surgery. If only somebody else had done the surgery. If only they had known what they know now. If only. Now, I don't know what your if-onlys are, but no matter what your if-onlys, no matter what your regrets, the best thing we can do is take them to Jesus, as Mary and Martha did. Often we hold back our if-onlys from God, but we hold on to our resentments. It's better to get them out in the open, to talk to God about them. Mary and Martha's if-onlys indicate that Jesus is late. Perhaps it's a complaint at Jesus' delay. Perhaps they're angry at themselves for not sending the messenger sooner, or even angry with God at their brother's death. That's a pretty typical reaction. Or perhaps they're just wishing, just just hoping, just hoping that something could have happened and living in a world of regrets. So thirdly, let's talk about God's disappointing delays. When we send for God, when we pray to God, and he doesn't arrive on time to do exactly what we want, we're often disappointed or angry. Why doesn't Jesus leave immediately when he hears Lazarus is sick? 
Just before this event, we read in John chapter 10, verses 40 to 42, that Jesus is across the Jordan River where John had been baptizing earlier. That's what it says. Jesus is probably preaching, baptizing, and healing because the chapter ends. In that place, many believed in Jesus. Jesus was active in ministry when he got this message, but the scripture gives no indication that his delay in going back to to Lazarus is because he's too busy. In fact, if you add up the days of that story, a day for the messenger to travel and find Jesus, two more days that Jesus stays there, and a day for Jesus himself to travel to Bethany, you get the four days that Lazarus had been dead. So Lazarus probably died not long after the messenger left to find Jesus. He didn't die in the intervening time that Jesus stayed there. Now, people in that day often believed that the spirit hung around the body for three days waiting to return. One tradition is that the Jews would return to the cemetery after three days to check to see if the person was living or still dead. So Lazarus being dead for four days is significant to this story to confirm that Jesus really is dead. But as soon as Jesus gets word of Lazarus' sickness, Jesus knows the outcome. He knows the purpose in his death. It's not meaningless. In verse 4, he said, "This, This sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus makes clear that the purpose for this particular death, not not the reasons for all death, and for his delay here. The first is so that God's glory will be seen and so that God's Son will be glorified. Now, I think glory is one of those religious words that needs translating. It simply means to be seen as it is, to, to be revealed. So this death and the events around it will reveal who God's Son really is. Now the second reason for this death and delay is so that you may believe. That's down in verse 15. The tragedy is not caused by God, but God will use it for an opportunity to glorify His Son, to bring these folks to faith in Christ. Perhaps a second level of reasoning for Jesus' delay is to show that Jesus is controlled by God's timing, not by others' idea of time. I think one of our frustrations is that God doesn't work on our timetable. He didn't get me this job at this right time. I had to struggle. I didn't get someone to say they love me at the right time. I was lonely during the virus and nobody called me. I can't stand this shelter in place any longer. It has to end now. Our difficulties, though not usually caused by God, can always be used by God to teach us to trust him more deeply. Christians often tell others, God is never late. But I think we should always add to that, God is never early either. He's an on-time God, but he's not working with Swiss precision watches. He's not working according to an atomic clock. God is working on his time with ultimate purposes in mind. 
And all through the phrase, also through John's gospel, we see the phrases, his time has not yet come. But we're more like Jesus' brothers when he tells them, for you, any time is right. But not for Jesus. He is on God's time. But finally, in John's gospel, later we would read, the hour has come. It's time. When delay comes, God may well have a better time and a better place. We may not understand it then. We may not ever understand it. Perhaps we don't even need to understand it. And in our current massive, earth-stopping pandemic, we don't know when it will end. We don't know why so many people have died. God is not the author of death, but perhaps he will use even this pandemic if people are open to him. We don't say that these deaths are good. We don't need to say that. It's not true. But we can look for God to be seen even in the midst of great difficulties. God didn't cause police officer Chauvin to keep his knee on the neck of George Floyd for eight minutes and 46 seconds until he breathed his last breath. But this is one death that's been used for a clear purpose, to wake up people like me and like you, to listen and to learn from the situation of others. How do other people feel? How do other people get treated? And Floyd's death can make a change in the world if we will listen. God's glory can be seen even in a terrible situation like that. In a very interesting conversation between Martha and Jesus, in verses 21 to 27, Martha makes a decisive confession of her faith in Jesus. She says, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. Martha proclaims Jesus as the Messiah, the one who would be the deliverer of the world. She recognizes that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. Her confession of faith really typifies the most basic confession for one to become a Christian. It's very similar to the confession many of us repeat at baptism, like the Ethiopian official who proclaims, look, here is water, why can't I be baptized? And Philip, who had been talking to him about Jesus through the Old Testament, he said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And then this official answered, he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And when Jesus asked Peter who he thought Jesus was, he answered, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And when we repeat our confession at baptism, we may have only the most basic understanding of what it means. And we have no idea, it seems, of how it's going to change our lives, that that simple belief. The implications of that are way beyond our comprehension at the time. It's the same with Martha here, I think. She has no idea what this confession fully means. Her confession is really excellent about the future, but it's limited regarding the present. And this is probably true for many of us, too. We believe we're going to heaven. We believe that we have salvation in the future, but we don't fully realize 
that life with Jesus starts now. If physical life begins at conception and birth, then eternal life begins at conception of faith and new birth in Jesus, being born again. Now Jesus expresses that real life happens now. Jesus said in verse 25, I am, that is present tense, I am now the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Jesus' power over death shows us that life is possible for all of us now. But it doesn't just start when we die. E-life, as I like to call it, starts now. It's not just future life in heaven. It's real, eternal life now. But that life that I like to put in all capital letters is dependent on belief in Jesus, on trust him. He who believes in me, who puts their trust in me, will live. This kind of life we experience now has a connection with whether or not we put our full trust in Jesus now. One of the tendencies of people today, I think, is to accept the nice things about Christianity. Belief in heaven, where everything will be wonderful, that God cares about us now. But we forget that there are also responsibilities and consequences to put our trust in him. We're called to put our trust in him and receive the blessings. Or if we refuse, we must accept the consequences. C.S. Lewis writes in one of my favorite books, uh, The Great Divorce. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it will be opened. So Jesus asks Martha straight, do you believe this? He's asking Martha if her faith will take her to understand that Jesus has lordship even over death itself. Martha says that even now God will give you whatever you ask, Jesus. But she has no idea that Jesus is talking about raising her brother from the dead now. Before we move to the conclusion of the story, we need to see how Jesus responds to the death of his friend. And I think it can teach us something also about how to experience grief. Jesus expresses what I like to call good grief. And Charlie Brown likes to call it that as well. The shortest verse in the Bible is verse 35. Jesus wept. It reveals an expression of one of the most complex of human emotions. Tears can mean so many things. Children cry when they scrape their knee or when they get their feelings hurt. And adults cry tears of sorrow and also hurt feelings too. But adults also cry for joy. I'm so happy. Others cry when they're angry or when they're frustrated. Some of us cry at the drop of a hat. Others, it takes the drop of an anvil on our toe to actually make us cry. 
Some cry at meaningful moments in movies, and others just think that's soppy and silly, and they would never do that. But why did Jesus weep? I mean, the most obvious reason is because of the loss of a friend. Death hurts. And that's how the onlookers interpreted it. They said, see how he loved him. And Jesus shows us that expressing grief is normal. It's healthy. It's nothing to be ashamed of. And we can all do that. But Jesus' good grief was clean grief. It wasn't filled with the regrets. He had no if-onlys and the guilt which often plague us when someone near us dies. Good relationships where you love someone and they know it make for clean grief. It's real grief. It still hurts, sure. But when our relationships are solid, when we deal with the pure grief of loss, instead of the myriad of other mixed-up feelings and, and regrets, then we have clean grief. And this reminds us to keep our relationships with one another clean, forgiven, and always updated with clearly expressed love. There's a second reason why Jesus may have cried. I think it's death itself. Death is clearly the great enemy which Jesus fought against. I mean, he reversed illness, he raised a few others from the dead, and finally he overcame his own death. Death itself is worth crying about. It's not God's plan. It's no wonder we cry when somebody dies. And related to this is a third reason. Perhaps Jesus cried because of the failure of people to understand the issues of death and life. Jesus is troubled. He's perhaps angry here with people's failure to understand deep meaning, death's deep meaning. In verses 33 and 38, the NIV translates that Jesus is deeply moved in spirit and troubled. But It's really a word that's stronger than deeply moved. It's actually the word for a horse snorting. Now, I don't know why horses snort, but perhaps Jesus snorts in righteous anger at what death does to people. Death was never intended by the Father in the first place. And Jesus is troubled by the separation people experience when when someone dies. And I think how little people understand about real life, eternal life. And yet Jesus' grief is also different from the grief of those around them. Mary and the Jews were weeping in a loud demonstrative form of of mourning that included wailing, crying, and beating their chests. They expressed it with their emotions. But the word for Jesus wept is not really that kind of mourning. It's a quiet weeping that fits the master who has a redemptive plan, a life-giving plan. Now, I can't quite put this snorting and this quiet weeping together, but those words express the complexity of tears at death. There's fiery anger at fiery anger at at death's interruption. And at the same time, there's quiet confidence that God is in control. Death is not the end. So Jesus has both holy anger and good 
grief. Let's read uh, verses 38 to 45 of chapter 11. And it gives Jesus' ultimate answer. Jesus, once more deeply moved, same word, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, uh, for he's been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? You'd see who God really is. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a a cloth around his face. I don't know how he walked out with all of that on him, but, but he did. And Jesus said to them, take the grave clothes off and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary had seen what Jesus did, and they put their faith in him. So the dramatic high point is when Jesus gives the ultimate answer to death. He calls in a loud voice for Lazarus to come out. This is not a request. It's a shout of raw authority. You may have heard the little saying about why Jesus uses Lazarus' name when he says, Lazarus, come out. It's because all of the tombs would have emptied if he didn't. And when Lazarus comes out of the grave with his uh, grave claws tightly wound around him, Jesus had to tell the spectators to, to take Take the grave's clothes off. I mean, perhaps they were so frightened, they were so spellbound that they they couldn't even move. They didn't want to get any closer. Perhaps the Jewish purification laws were also in their mind. If I touch a dead body, I'll be unclean. But wait, what's the rule about dead folks who now came alive? Would I be unclean then or, or not? They don't know. But Lazarus being raised from the dead is a huge sign about Jesus. It's not like that little sign along the road that says Scenic Highway. No, no. This is one of those giant freeway signs that shouts out so that nobody can miss it. It should direct people to faith. It should stimulate trust in Jesus. If Jesus can do this, I surely can put my trust in him. And it reveals the glory of God. It reveals who God is. But you know, according to Jesus, even a resurrection miracle will be not enough to persuade some people of the power and reality of God. Some of the people who stood there knew Lazarus was dead. They knew he was alive again. But they still didn't get the point of the sign. They refused to believe in Jesus. And in the next section, in chapter 11 of John, which we don't have time to read today, the leaders want to kill Jesus. 
And they want to kill Lazarus too because Lazarus is exhibit A that point to who Jesus is. They want to tear down that sign. So signs stimulate faith, but they cannot demand faith. They can't make it happen. Miracles themselves do not transform lives. People have to be open to the work of God. So, what will you do with this huge sign that Jesus has power over death? And what will you do with this huge I am statement that Jesus makes? I am the resurrection and the life. Put your trust in him. I suppose the ultimate, if only, would be sitting at a funeral thinking, if only she put her trust in Jesus. If only he had had faith in the Lord. Trust in Jesus is the ultimate dividing point of whether we will live that e-life with Christ eternally. The deepest answer to death's dark questions, Jesus himself. His life, his words, his actions, his death, his resurrection. How does that change your life today? Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that you performed signs that point to who you are. I thank you so much that you made a difference in those people's lives when they put their trust in you. And I thank you also that you explained who you were, that you are the source of resurrection, that you are the life, and that you offer that life to us. And Lord, I pray that if there's anybody who's listening to this uh, message, who's watching these words come out of me, that they would hear your word. They would hear your truth. And I pray that they will also desire to put their faith in practice. And for those of us, Lord, who've known you for a long time, who've made that same confession that Martha did, that we believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, would you help us to live that every day? And even in the midst of this, this crisis that we're facing, the crisis of death all around us, the crisis of, of wondering what will happen, would you help us to live out our faith, to step out and help other people to find you in the midst of this crisis? Thank you, Lord, that you use even the most tragic events in life to bring real life. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you, and may the Lord bless you as you go and as we move into communion where we meet this Jesus again. Amen. Good morning, brothers and sisters. I hope that today finds you well. But if you find yourself in need of a little extra encouragement, let me offer you Hebrews 12:2, which reminds us to let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father.
The joy that was set before him was the knowledge that his sacrifice on a cross for us would, would open up a door for generations to come, including you and me, that our sins could be forgiven by putting our faith and trust in him, and that once again we could be reconciled to the Father. It's with that attitude of gratitude that I would like to have us come to his table this morning. But before we take the elements, let's take a moment in our homes and thank the Lord Jesus for what he's done and to confess any known sins that we may come clean to his table. Reading from Mark chapter 9, uh, 14, excuse me. He said that uh, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Let's take this together. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Let's take the cup. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son to this earth on our behalf to accomplish something for us we could have never accomplished on our own. Thank you, Father, for grace. Thank you for its salvation. And we're just grateful, Lord, for all that you give us. And we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ha! <laughs> 